good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Very nice to see you all here this afternoon. Um, my name's John Gardine, it's Kate Fleetwood, um, and uh, we're here um, to talk mainly about uh, absolute hell and Rodney Ackland. Um, as I'm sure you know, uh, the uh, National has revived, has done two productions of this play, one in the ni early 90s and brought it back this year, 25 years later, both productions have been in the Littleton. And um, can I just ask, if there's ever, I'm assuming people have seen the play, but can you put your hand out if you, if you have? <laughs> okay, but if you haven't, that lady there, did you, did you say you have? Oh well, there we are. We'll, we'll try not. We'll try and have spoiler alerts for you in that case. Um, I think it's probably worth before we start just giving a little bit of context for the play because both Rodney and the play have had a rather strange and unusual history, um, and it will colour, I think, a lot of what we're going to talk about this afternoon. So Rodney Eckland was. Uh, active in the 30s, 40s and early 50s as a playwright, uh, actor, director, producer and scriptwriter. Um, and, you know, it's one of those things, his collaborators read like a who's who of the industry. He'd certainly worked with Peggy Ashcroft, Gil Good, Peter Ustinov, Robert Newton. And in the film world, he wrote scripts with and for Hitchcock, and with Powell and Pressburger, for instance, and was Oscar-nominated for his uh, script for 49th Parallel, which starred uh, Olivier. So, you know, he was a prominent figure in, in, in the world of theatre and entertainment and cinema. And in the, at the end of the war, he wrote Absolute Hell, which was his most... Um, uh, sorry, he wrote a play called The Pink Room, which was set in uh, Soho, in the immediate aftermath of the war, in the summer of 1945. And this is a play with a vast canvas. It has t over 20 main characters. Um, it addresses a huge array of subjects and issues and ideas and personalities and ages. And um, it was um, a tricky a tricky play to, to get produced because of its scale. In, but in 1951, Terence Ratkin, who was a great friend of Rodney Eklund, uh, uh, helped to put a, a finance production at the Lyric Theatre Hammersmith, and it was produced, Hermione Bentley in, in the cast. And um, the, 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 uh, the play was very, very badly received, um, both by critics and by the general public, um, Binky Beaumont famously called it a libel on the British people. It was just, people just didn't understand its outlook or its vision or its attitude at all. The show closed after three weeks. Rattigan lost all his money. Apparently he never spoke to Rodney Eklund again. And uh, Rodney uh, was so um, affected by this experience that he basically gave up, more or less gave up writing for the stage altogether after that. So if we roll on 30 years, um, he was living in Richmond uh, in quite uh, reduced circumstances and quite ill and elderly when um, Sam Walters, who ran the Orange Tree Theatre at that time, um, 
in a newspaper article, said he was interested in receiving plays from uh, local writers. So Terry's sort of carer, um, minder, a guy called Terry Todd, came down to the theatre with a play called The Dark River and gave it to Sam said, look, this is my friend wrote this. So Sam opened it up. And this play had been done in the West End, directed by Gielgud, Peggy Ashcroft in the lead, you know, an extraordinary piece of work which had completely dropped off everyone's radar. So um, it was um, the Orange Tree did that production. Um, and a couple of years later, when I was working as Sam's assistant, we were, he produced a rewritten version of The Pink Room, now entitled Absolute Hell. And uh, clearly what he had done is taken that play written in the 1950s and in changes in style, in the demise of the Lord Chamberlain's office, in terms of what it was illegal to show on stage, in terms of, for instance, homosexuality, um, he had completely rewritten that play, or, or reworked it. And we did, uh, or the Orange Street put on a production, uh, of that new version of the script, Absolute Hell. So it, 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 it stra- it, the script, sort of, it's, if you imagine, it's kind of a, an amalgam of a play written in the 50s and, the, and rewritten in the 80s. And um, the, the, it was uh, re- generated a certain amount of interest in Rodney's work. The play was done on TV, directed by Andy Page, and it was then done at the National here in 1995. Um, and now it's being done again, uh, which is uh, exciting and interesting to see. Rodney died in the early 90s, so sadly never lived to see these uh, new productions of his work, but I like to think he's kind of cheering on from somewhere, not absolute hell. Uh, so in this production, directed by Joe Hill Gibbons, um, the role of Christine, who is the um, proprietor of the nightclub, La Ville Rose, where the action takes place, is taken by one of our most acclaimed and distinguished classical actresses, Kate Fleetwood. So let's welcome Kate. Um, so that's my two penneth. Um, so Kate, maybe you'd like to share with us, you know, how you first encountered the play, Rodney's work and so on. I first encountered it because Joe emailed me part I'd really like to play <laughs> and I couldn't do it actually because I was filming so it looked like I wasn't going to be able to be part of it and so and then suddenly that started to sort of work its way through with the kindness of producers and people who were being kind and um, and so I started I didn't want to invest in investigating it if, you know as an actor if something stangled in front of you and then taken away, it's quite painful. So I didn't want to investigate it too deeply until I kind of got a bit more of a green light from the powers that be that it might be possible. And so then I started to read it, and um, and I I kind I couldn't I kind of couldn't believe it as a piece. I mean, it's so mm. it's like a sprawl of of characters, and the and it and it hinges on so many different people, and it sort of. Rem- it's a bit like a piece of performance art, actually, I think. I mean, obviously, it has narrative thrusts and narrative process and outcomes, but actually you spend, it's a, you spend three hours in a pub, basically, with, with lots of characters, um, as much as you would have maybe, I don't know, in the 50s, spent in the pub. <laughs> we don't do that anymore. 
it's interesting, we'll come to that in a bit, but, but um, so I was just really, I was really fascinated in the, even though I was really, really drawn to Christine for lots of reasons, I was also really fascinated by the depth of characters in the show, depth, the depth, because sometimes you can have like three or four really interesting characters and then everybody else is sort of trying to kind of support them and sort of, they seem to be afterthoughts. But every single character is really vivid. And I, and I like being in ensemble shows, and, and I really like being in a, in a, with a group of people making something, um, and knowing that the depth of field, is people are really enjoying the depth of field of, their, of, of what they're um, you know, creating, inhabiting, and, and contributing to a room, I guess. So partly, I think, because I'd been filming a lot, I just wanted to be in the room with a bunch of actors having a good time. I mean, mm -hmm. that's really quite a, a, big, a big draw. Yeah. <laughs> and, but the part of Chris, my, my nan used to be a barmaid in Liverpool mm. in, in, in the 50s. And I just, and she died a couple of years ago, and I just was very drawn to it. And I just thought, it, I just wanted to sort of connect with that, I guess. Um, but there's lots of, you know, there's lots of reasons as an actor gets drawn to a role, and lots of reasons you can get drawn to a role, and, you, and they don't necessarily, they're not the gold you find. You find different things in, in what you do, and, so, and it's surprising. I didn't, it, the, the, the uh, hello? <laughs> there's always surprises when you make a role, and the surprising thing to me in this role is that I'm really lonely <laughs> on stage. <laughs> um, and I didn't sort of read that into it necessarily because you just think it's really populated, so you're just going to be sort of kicking around having a great laugh all night with the, with a bunch of people. Yes, because Christine's never off stage almost, is she? No. Constantly off. Uh, yeah, you know, I spend a lot of the time pinging around the stage like a pinball and not really talking to anybody. It's really fascinating, and the effect of that and performance is quite in interesting because you feel really, really quite lonely, and, and that's not necessarily something that I sort of was, was, was imagining in this role, and I thought I'd feel like I was at a party all the time, and actually I feel like I'm at a terrible party most of the time, and I'm being completely left out, um, which is quite, it's quite fascinating, I can, obviously I can live in it, but it was a surprise that that's how, that, and of course that, that is how it feels, that's how Christine feels, she's trying to keep the party going and no one really they care because she's an enabler. She's an she's an enabler of alcoholism. She's an enabler of of, of bad behaviour, or, or not bad behaviour, but the behaviour that is would be deemed on the periphery of morale and morality. Mm -hmm. um, so um, we were just uh, we were discussing um, just just now. We were saying that uh, my. It's very interesting in the play. Quite a lot of the other characters have quite um, quite a detailed backstory. You know, like for instance, Hugh Mariner, who is, I suppose, the most significant male role in the play, although they're all significant. And it's mostly the, the autobiographical voice uh, uh, of Rodney. Yes, thanks. Yes, that has shares some of Rodney's um, career patterns. And <laughs> he's, he's a writer struggling to survive. And his, his backstory is quite clear. His mother is in the play, his partner is in the play, he talks about what he did in the past and so on, um, as do others. But Christine is uh, peculiarly elusive in that way, isn't mm -hmm. okay, I think that's a, I think that's probably deliberate in the sense that if the feeling you get from Christine, I think, that I wouldn't want to presume, 
is that you know someone like that, but you don't really know them. And there's somebody's the sort of the, the 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 kind of energy conductor in the whole evening is this person that's sort of battling around from one sort of event to another, trying to grasp everybody to her bosom, and then they just leave. <laughs> is how often we can feel in those social sort of milieus, but also that that there is a, a deep loneliness about being with a lot of people. <laughs> I think we can all connect to that. Um, Backstory is really interesting as an actor because, you know, I've played a lot of parts and a lot of parts don't offer you backstory. I mean, maybe there'll be a little plum detail, or, you know. But I, I'm a firm believer as you play what the writer wants, it gives you. So sometimes it doesn't really, you don't really need to know the back. You just play the moment, you play the moment, play the moment. Um, but for the sake of process, you sort of have to sort of touch on well, hang on, who, who, who actually is this person? I can't just play this. And so I started to, like we all did, um, you probably all know a bit about this, is that there was a very famous club in, in town called the Colony Club, um, which was a, a late night drinking mm. um, den. Which well, was actually, early morning as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah which, was, which was um, right next to the Groucho, as it is now. <clears throat> And it was really dingy. And I read uh, recently, because I was, I can't remember where I was. I wasn't in a club. <laughs> um, but that to get to the, to get from, to get in from the Colony Club, you could get to the Groucho through the toilets. So people would go through the Groucho into the, green, into the Colony Club to go and have a really grubby time in the Colony Club and then go through the, the men's toilets and get into the Groucho and have a sort of more glitzy time. But they all really quite liked the Colony Club because it's where people really spoke their minds. And it's where Francis Bacon was employed, actually, by the proprietress, Muriel Belcher. She paid him something like 10 whatever's a week and said, mm. can you be here? Because so, you'll draw these characters in. So he was an, a great patron of the Colony Club. So I read a lot about, mm. about the Colony Club and Muriel Belcher. It was a different kind of... I think she ruled it with a bit more of an iron fist than Christine's. I think Christine's sort of... She tries to rule it with an iron fist, but she fails because she's desperate to be loved. And, um, and, uh, but I did obviously read about Muriel because I thought maybe I'd hinge it on something. And how does a woman in 1945, how, how, how is she running, how does she, why has she got this club? Yeah, um, what, I mean, just economically um, and just socially, how would a single woman be? But Muriel Belcher, grew up in the Midlands, I grew up in the Midlands, and um, she grew up in Birmingham, and her father owned a, was, a, was actually a, a, man of the, a man of the cloth, uh, but he also had um, an interest in cinema, so he ran um, a, a cinema club in Birmingham, and so she, the, the daughter of this man would have sort of been around entertainment of some kind, and then she came down to London and knew somebody who mm. ran a a theatre, or he ran a pub, he ran a thing, and so for me, I could kind of, I, the penny dropped, I thought, oh, actually, yes, if you were sort of on the periphery of the entertainment world in the 40s and 50s, you could probably find a way in to something sort of pertaining glamour and ent the entertainment industry, so I sort of imagined that's how it worked, that she probably got a job in a restaurant, and someone said, would you like to do this, so that's probably how it, how it sort of manifested. It's, um, I, we were talking earlier and saying I, I struggle to think of another 
female ca- independent uh, female character uh, in a play of this period who's, uh, I mean, I don't mean someone who's aristocratic or something, but who has that level of sort of self-determination, although, you know, she messes it up a bit, but, um, <laughs> but who is independent in that, in that way. And, um, you know, that's why I was interested to know where, where she come from, this one. But there was Muriel Belcher, who was similar kind yes. of a person. But, of course, the, the, the death knell for Christine is at the beginning of the play, when the, because the war's over. And now the war is over, she, she doesn't have this... This place no longer is needed in the same way. Um, and so she can't stand the idea that the future's on the march, which is in the quote, someone says, the future's on the march. She, it's, it's, it's like taking away her children. Because <laughs> she now, without the war, she doesn't have the need, people don't need to escape in the same way. And without the war, the GIs won't be there. <laughs> and she doesn't want the war to end. And she cannot stand the Labour Committee runs across the road because that means that's democracy, that's democracy and that's change. And that's, she doesn't want change. She very rarely goes outside. She doesn't want to go outside. There's always something going outside, she says. Always something. You know, she never goes out of the flat, ever. Um, and people come, and then they, they go. And of course, yes, she is independent, but she really needs those people. So she's, she's, a, she's probably codependent more than any, any of them. Yeah, and it's a mood, isn't it, Kate, that it's the, the kind of received version of the story is, um, you know, patriotic Brits waving Union Jacks and, you know, dancing in the street and the Queen going out into Trafalgar Square and all the rest of it. And I think that by the time the play was performed, early 50s, I think the, our Queen was just about to go on the throne, the Festival of Britain was taking place just up there, and this sense of kind of resisting the future was better. Well, that's one of the reasons why the Chamberlain didn't want it to appear in its original um, form, because it was was so anti-patriotic, wasn't it? We'd won the war, but everyone was just desperate and depressed and (laughs) was crumbling over the rubble, even though we'd won. And it was, you know, that was not the headline people wanted to be talking about. And I think, yes, so, so not having... The future was a scary thing for mm. all of them. But the future's a scary thing for an alcoholic, I guess. Mm. For any of so but what something that always strikes me every night is I'm sort of comatose at <laughs> 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 point. And Hugh says, Oh God, I really am drunk, aren't I? And Doris the the, the, the sort of um cool. it's not the coach, but like the housekeeper. Sort of says, oh, I don't know what you're all like. You're all trying to escape yourselves all the time, and, and he says, oh, well, we're all trying to do that. And then, and then he runs off, going, oh, see you tomorrow. <laughs> and of course, that's a new, That's how it would have been. And I read a really interesting piece on our production in the Economist a few weeks ago, which is about the notion of the third space that we don't really have that anymore. Um, so, that, so the public space, mm. such as this or a workplace, then the private space that we have at home. And the third space, which is kind of important for us as hu- human creatures to explore sort of the bad, difficult sides of ourselves and then be forgiven and come back tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> and with, I mean, I hate to sound like, you know, what with social media and everything, but what with social media and everything? <laughs> um, you, 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 can, you say what you want to say and you can't take it back. 
Whereas in the blue, in the pink room, and then in the Vion Red, you can be really horrible to each other, and you'll be forgiven, and you'll come back the next day and start over. <laughs> and you can get really, really drunk, and you can say what you really mean in Vion mm. Veritas, and people will forgive you, and it's okay. But now we don't, we don't really have those shared spaces anymore. I mean, so it's, even in my, you know, I remember going to the pub as a kid, you know, as a teenager, you know, we'd all go down the Star and Garter and Edmonton Spa and things would happen and everyone would forget by tomorrow. But we don't, have, we don't have those third spaces anymore. It's very hard to kind of co-opt people mm. into those third spaces and know that they'll be there next week, you know. That's so, so I think it's about having that place to go that you can be a part, a version of yourself that you, want, you may want to explore and you'll be forgiven next week and you can come back. <laughs> um, so the, I suppose that when you all eventually um, congregated in the rehearsal room on day one, clearly the play has, pro- has many challenges, the scale of it. It's huge. Um, the, uh, the, the whole business of this being... Um, you know, as you're saying, it's rooted in its period, very much so. But it also has this slightly larger metaphorical element to it. I suppose the place where people come, um, just that's very long. And um, I just w- wondered, uh, Kate, could you tell us like what it was like on day one, where people could. Well, on day, day what we did, we didn't do a read through. We couldn't. We didn't have time because it's so big. <laughs> we did. We read a bit of the first half, but we just had to. It's one of those plays that you know you look at the scale of rehearsal process you've got in front of you, and unless you just crack on, you're just not going to achieve it. Um, I mean, which is actually a process I, I err towards enjoying more as I get older and I've got kids to get back to and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I don't need to sit around and talk about it. Can we just get on and find mm-hmm. out as you do it? Um, so I'm getting less interested by table work, I'm more interested mm-hmm. in getting up and getting on with it and seeing, finding out through doing it whether it works or not, rather than sitting around talking about it. Um, but so we didn't really have time to sort of just chat about the play. Um, and then by, by the second or the third day, we had a mock-up of that set in the rehearsal room, um, which is an amazing facility with national mm. and quite a lot of theatres have now where the amazing crew and production staff will make a version of the set that you are going to have so you can play on that set so we went home and it was like the elves and the shoemakers had come mm. one night and the sort of the fairies had created this incredible thing and we all went oh my goodness this is a big thing because <laughs> it's a cross-section of a three-story house and um and I just walk up and down stairs all the time. So my legs have got very trim. But, <laughs> but, um, but I walk up and down the stairs only knowing that I've walk, got to walk down and back up them. So, <laughs> so I spend a lot of time on staircases. But, um, <laughs> but we, we, it's already a large cast, but also what Joe wanted to do with our production was to sort of expand that with a sort of more expressionistic take on it, which was to populate it with what we then called the gold members. So you have your, your core members and then the gold members, and we have these guys who are the, the sort of um, the, the swarming mass, the seething mass. Mm. But, and we were three down last night, actually, because we had three people ill, so it was like a crazy show last night. But, um, and, uh, and so we did a lot of physical work. We did a lot of physical work about being, what being drunk is, and, mm. and etc. <laughs> So, 
so yeah, it it took quite a while to just get it together. And while everybody in the rest of the country was worried about North Korea dropping a nuclear bomb mm-hmm. on us, we were all just going, "What is next in absolute?" Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for weeks we were just going, "What's next?" Because mm. it's so big, and I, we still go, "What's next? What's next?" Because it's very quick, even though it goes over a long period in the evening. It's a very, very technical show to do with drinks. and So it, it was basically like a logistical process, how you get this thing on. And then, you know, I'd have moments in bed at night going, I know how we can do that, right? We're going to have to do a whole kind of drinks thing. And we'll have to do a sort of, you know, so it's a, a, a sort of amazingly complicated thing to put on. And I've done a production here a few years ago called London Road, which mm-hmm. was very, very hard to learn. And I would put this akin that, which I would be, say very, very, very gingerly about things, but it was really, all of us found it very, very yes. hard. And the language is quite hard as well. Yeah. The syntax of it is quite tricky to learn. A lot of repetition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And also, um, uh, what's quite interesting is that a lot of what Rodney wrote, it, particularly in Charles Edwards part, Hugh, it's like every um and uh and I'm sorry is scripted. Everything, a, yeah. That's what every, it, was like. it was like London oh, Road. Yeah. It was um, uh, uh, lots of that. Right. Uh, and I think that some people go, when I was talking to some people, they said, oh, I thought it was just, he was just doing very naturalistic No, acting. it's all on script. It's uh, all on the script. Yeah. Which is, for a play of that period, it's very unusual. unusual. You know, that we associate that more with, I suppose... Uh, you know, American playwrights in a way, or David Mamet and you know, people like that, who, you know, always have their scripts with things in brackets and commas and uh, kind of trying yes, to Yes, it's recreate. very prescriptive. So there's a lot of the stage directions are very prescriptive as well. So it can yeah. be, you know, uh, with the bit, there's a bit at the end of the first half where Christine is asleep and then the, these, the GIs come in. I don't want to spoil it for you. <laughs> but, which could be real or a dream, who knows, blah, blah, blah. But... Before that, Rodney says, you know, uh, Christine goes to the window. We don't have a window in half, but Christine goes to the window and her transformation is complete. <laughs> but, he doesn't say, but he doesn't say from what to what. <laughs> so you're like, morphing. But Methias says her transformation is complete. Very interesting. Interesting kind of stage direction. He was, I mean, I think how the script is written, you do, you do see his work as a scriptwriter in that. I think that, would you agree, Kate? Yeah. There are bits when it reads like a shooting script for a film and you see they think you have in the window over the street we see something or other and it's almost a tracking, establishing shot or something. He, he writes with a kind of um, cinematic. cinematic view. Um, I've just read his autobiography, actually, and, and he always said that what, I, what he really wanted to be was a film director. But the only way he could get to do that would be um, to write some scripts, write some screenplays. And then nobody would employ him to write screenplays. So he thought he'd write some plays, get them on, which would be easier. And, and uh, so this book is virtually ignores his theatre career altogether. It's all about his work in the film. I, I suspect that's sort of disingenuous. But, uh, it, but it's certainly there, I think, in his, in his script that you see, he, suddenly he paints kind of stage pictures, doesn't he? Or, as you say, make statements about it. Um, And this has happened. And you have to kind of... Interpret them all. Uh, You you touched on... I mean, uh, uh, 
this business about you know that the virtually the entire cast are fueled through vast amounts of alcohol um, in this play, and um, you know that's a, no. How did you guess that? Kate? <laughs> well, <I'm, laughs> what was your I'm research? Totter, I'm totter, yeah, I've never had, never had a drink, but. Um, um, I think I, the amount of whiskey I, I think, I, if I were to drink, if she's drinking what she drinks, she's drinking at least a bottle and a half of scotch a night, which is probably not far off what she was doing, um, because it's like she has another double, another double, have another double, have another double in mind, this is my treble whiskey, she says, I'll have a treble whiskey, so if you put that over, I mean, anyway, everyone's just knocking it back left, right and centre. So often in a play where there's drink, there will be a discussion, <laughs> like, maybe this is the one where you do a wet run. And that's known, a wet run, for those of you who don't know, a wet run in the biz is that you drink in a rehearsal, whatever you drink, to see. I've never done it. Um, and we just sort of thought, no, we haven't got time, we just haven't got time to do that. Well, we'll be off for a week anyway. Yeah. After um, <laughs> and, and also we'd have to film it because unless... You'd never remember the funny bits, <laughs> you know. And then we'd have to have this, we'd have to deal with the terrible humiliation of watching it, and it would be awful. So we decided we'd all go out for the night. That's what we did instead, and um, not on the nationals card, I have to say, so on our card. We went to Blacks, which is very like this. Uh, this there's a club in, in um, Soho, like Blacks, um, and it, the feel knows it's a bit like Blacks, I guess, and. Uh, and we all just, it was only, it was like the second week of rehearsals, and yes, and it was, it was fun and interesting. <laughs> but the very thing, the thing that you probably, you, you learn, if drinks just don't, drunks, they just don't listen to each other. That's, that's kind of the main thing, isn't it? People just talk at each other and walk off. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of that, isn't there? Um, but the, the fueling of it, it's sad, it's very, I mean, they're all addicted to it, and they're all addicted to the club, and they're addicted to their relationships, and they're addicted, I mean, it is... I think it's uncomfortable viewing, I think, away from that. I think it must be uncomfortable viewing for a lot of people. Um, I, I have friends who, you know, who have found it hard to watch that. And, and, uh, and, it's, and it's scary to know, it's not scary, but it's more that you know that the audience can sort of switch off from it. So I don't want to see that. I don't. I don't want to be reminded of the things I know about, or I, you know. So it's 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 uncomfortable in some ways. This this addiction that you were watching. It's very funny as well. It is. I mean, it, yeah. <laughs> some of the things that Rodney comes out with, we've just been like, Rodney, this is insane. Um, yeah. No, there are some moments that straight out of, <laughs> really? kind, of, of kind of of fast, you know. Yeah, it's very fast, very funny bits in it. And also bits which are really ahead of their time. I mean, he's talking about things which would just have, you know, at the time would have been extraordinary. And, the, and also the death camps. They are mentioned in this play. Uh, one of the soldiers comes back with, with photographs of, uh, of the liberated camps. And this was apparently, you probably know better than me, but this was the very, very first time that death, the death camps um, Ravensbrook, Birkenhead, all of them were mentioned publicly on a, on a stage, and that would have been really shocking, I think. Um, yes, I, I think. Um, yeah, yeah, but uh, <clears throat> I think certainly 
the intention is that the real world forces its... I mean, the worst aspects of the real world force themselves into, um, into this safe place. Mm-hmm. And it has profound effect on some of them and not on others. It's quite... quite <coughs> but, but yes, I, th- I believe it is the first... First uh, mention of, of the Holocaust and so on in in British drama. Uh, there may be others, if not certainly one of the first. And you know, you can imagine 1952. Who wants to go back to all that? You know, can't we just get on with? Uh, you know. But you've got the Labour the Labour Party as well. I know, really. I mean, it's got. I mean, I think as an actor or practitioner, you're always trying to find the relevance for today. You know, that's sort of in your guts. <laughs> like, and and I. I do feel a bit with Corbyn and the momentum movement, this sense of like, you know, we are going to things, you know, coming, and that must have been very similar at that time. Um, yes, yeah, so, so that, you know, but change. Um, it, it was uh, interesting, actually, because when we did uh, the production in, um, uh, in um, Richmond, uh, was years ago, we were sort of at the end of the Thatcher era, uh, about a year before she um, resigned, um, and it was one a certain kind of uh, you know a certain kind of social and political context in which we were doing it in. And I was very interesting, interested to get you to see the play again, and also to talk to people in it about you know now we're in a completely different state of affairs, but. It's not dissimilar, is it? The sort of Brexit and everything, you know, that what we've been hanging on to for a long time is going to change. And, yes, and nobody Christy, really knows. Christy, I think, is a definite lever. I'm, I'm sorry, but, um, she's, a, she's a lever. She, she doesn't want to be part of the new shape of things. She wants to absolutely go, stay in, you know, she just doesn't want to be, have anything to do with other countries. Yeah. I mean, Except she, the United apart States, from the of States America. which I think is really interesting and very current in some, you know, we still want the, all the great stuff from America, and, and now we have similar feeling of like, well, some of us think, you know, that's, you know, to be orbited by that great big power, you know, keep those close, but we just send everybody <laughs> else back. And, you know, I do say, go back to Germany, Siegfried Schrader. Yeah. And she's really clear. She does not want <laughs> these guys there, but she's really happy with the Americans because you know they're good in bed. <laughs> you know they, they bring her they bring her stockings, and they and so she's got this kind of like romantic, glamorous idea of who she could be, and of course by the end it's it's just sort of gone, absolutely gone. In the um, in the in the program, there's an article by um, a social historian who writes about Soho in the war, and I don't have a copy of it here, but I, I was reading it earlier today, and it said something like uh, quotes saying that in the that the war provided um, license for all kinds of activities and freedoms, mainly sexual, which never happened either before or since. Just. The, 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 the actual award, the, you know, yeah. it was just uh, in, in its time I mean, provided the, I a mean, whole I read it's probably in the, I think it's in the, the introduction to the hard copy of the play, but uh, that of course the blitz, what that meant for the gay community was that you'd have sex in the dark. You know, there was, in blackout, there was blackout everywhere, and people could go in down alleyways and have sex with each other and no one would see. 
And that was like a really big boom. <laughs> so that, that was, you know, an activity that was, you know, obviously outlawed at the time. But, you know, there was, and a lot of men. There's a lot of, you know, men come back in American men. So, you know, there's this whole, you know, this hodgepodge mm. of, um, and of course, you know, that, you know, you know, you could die tomorrow and so be married. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, so as you were kind of working through this process at the rehearsal and, you know, as you pointed out, long, complicated, but difficult, um, you know, I, I mean, it's just the, the logistics of rehearsing a very long play are completely different, aren't they? And a big play are very different from rehearsing a three-hander that lasts for 90 minutes. It's yes. Completely yeah. different. I mean, I just spent the whole and, time going, who's in these gins? Because <laughs> I come out constantly going, two scotches, two gins, one gin for you. I'm just going, oh my God, I just got to learn the track of these drinks. <laughs> you have names of them. Um, and I just wondered, as you got into the, uh, as you were getting towards the end of that process, and uh, the first night was kind of coming up, if any particular um, other lines of thought or uh, had emerged, any, had your ideas changed about the play, of the people in it? Well, it's funny making making something because you just the, actually as I get more experience, the, the the hardest night is the first preview for nerves because you just don't know what you have. You know, you really don't know what you have, and it really is about like showing my the dirty washing. Going, any do you like it? You know, and that's really really. But by the time you sort of got to press night, you've you've toned it and changed it, and you know you've got on the potty where you wheel of it and sort of. You know, ah. But those previews are really tough because, I mean, not, you know, I won't lie, on the first, our first preview, people were leaving because it was just so long. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that was like quite, well, okay. And you've got to listen as a, as a performer and as a, as a practitioner, as a company, you have to say, okay, we need to, we need to like, sort this out. So it was quite, we had to get there. And by the fourth night, we'd taken 40 minutes off it. Yeah. You know, and that's, the, you know, just, I mean, I think <laughs> people might go, Wow, that was then it was really long. It was really long. <laughs> yeah. um, but it's all for the good, all for the greater good. You know, I no one can mind killing their babies. You know, like oh, I really like this line. No, they, it has got to go. It's got to go. It's got to go. It's got to go. Mm. Characters, the whole characters were cut. You know, Sergeant Maythingy or you know Detective or this that and the other. So people were very gracious and graceful about having things mm. cut. But you have to cut things to make them work. And I. You know, long form is an interesting thing nowadays because of TV's long. We, we watch long form TV in a way that we never used to watch long form TV. And with Ivo Verhoeven, and, and, you know, lots of his work has been long form. And, and so I think theatre audiences are, are becoming more attuned to long form. Um, I mean, we're very used to doing that one hour, one hour, 20 Greek tragedy, bang, you know, and, and all that. And, you know, and it's great. And I love being in those shows because I can get home to my kids, whatever. But, but you know, it is a muscle we are. We, we, you know, I go out every night knowing we are asking a lot of the audience. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, you have to, you have, I respect the audience and I have to say, you are, you know, stay with us, you know, stay with us. And, I mean, long-form TV is a different thing, as you'd say. But I was listening actually to a program, Radio Four program, a few weeks ago about with scriptwriters on, on on TV, and they now no longer rely on cliffhangers because people are just bouncing from one episode to another to another to another. Yeah. So it so TV writing has completely changed. So you don't need the 
EastEnders moment because people are just going to click four seconds, I'll go to the next. And we, have, we sort of ask you that when we perform this play. We say, stay, stay with us, stay with us. And it's, that's what I mean about it being quite performative, like a performance art piece. It's like you just have to kind of go in and out of being with it or not, not expect huge amounts of story, but really, really invest in the kind of people these people are and the lives they could have had and didn't have. Um, but the process of cutting is, is essential. You know, you can't, you have to be really responsible for your audience. Mm -hmm. You can't indulge. Yeah. You know, you have to, you have to move it on yeah. if you can. Yes, I mean the, the original production, the, the, the script that we did the reading of all those years ago was uh, even longer actually, very long, and um, it was the beginning of the second half where it, I would say it was the most complex moment of, of action, you've got about six stories going on simultaneously, and um, I am... Um, in, in my youth, and it was, I was involved in some of the uh, preparation of the script, and I said to Rodney Eklund, um, I think this is all a bit fast, isn't it? For the audience, they won't be able to follow it. And I remember he said, no, he said, not fast enough. It's like cutting great chunks yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah. And it absolutely goes like an express train. So there. what we've done in ours is we've put just kind of, sort of, I guess, a, a sort of, not a, a movement sec section, which incorporates all those little bits, of, those little vignettes. So we sort of do movements through it. And Joe, Joe Hill Gibbons, our director, is very well known for being sort of quite sort of avant-garde and an expressionistic in his approach. And he, he actually wasn't too... Yeah, he, he wasn't so much in this. He, let, he wanted to let the play... I think we would have all quite liked a few more cuts, actually. But I think he was just like, I just want to see what this play is. I think we have to honour honor Rodney. So we had in our rehearsal, we had a massive poster of Rodney on the wall, and we'd also been like, morning, Rodney. <laughs> um, and in my bar, I've got a picture of Rodney. So, like Rodney. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, yeah, we sort of honour it in a way because, like, who know? Because only a theatre like this, with its resources, can we put on plays like this because it's so vast. And um, and so yeah, so we sort of honour honour it, honour its being, I guess, rather than sort of getting too. Yeah, and I think that that that's if that the National Theatre, if it's not for doing that, I don't know what it's here for yeah. really. You know, and they say that um, it's it's a it's a play written within the British tradition, um, and it's had this sort of absolutely about British history, English history in some ways, in many many ways. But it also has these kind of multiple multiple layers, and uh, you're right, it just has to be. You can't half do it, you know. You can't say, "Oh, we'll do a short version then," because no. you would sort of, you no. wouldn't exist in that form almost. No. Okay, I'm, I'm aware that time is marching on, um, and Kate has this ordeal ahead of her uh, <laughs> this evening. So, it behooves me to thank Kate very much for bringing us uh, to, to speak to us today on, on what is obviously a busy time and uh, testing time very much back in the show no, tonight no, 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 it's not, and then no, there's no, some days you're doing matinee right there is, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, no, there are so, a few worse things to do um, okay, thank you very much and I think we can